Welcome to the Nip in the Bud podcast. We should be celebrating our differences and encouraging them. Everyone's journey is different. Nip in the Bud is a charity that works to support children's mental health by working with mental health professionals of the highest standing, producing free, short, evidence-based films, podcasts and fact sheets to help parents, educationalists and others working with children to recognise potential mental health conditions. In today's episode, we'll be looking at celebrating neurodiversity and strategies to support neurodiverse children attending mainstream primary schools and nurseries. I'm talking with Lauren Whitaker. Lauren has been a teaching assistant, a higher level teaching assistant, and a special educational needs manager working in schools for over 15 years. Lauren has worked with neurodiverse children and their families, supporting them by seeing and meeting their unique needs, helping them to feel nurtured in school and guiding them and those who care for them to empower learning and encourage development. Lauren's worked across the primary age range. She's championed many different strategies and approaches in schools to help children to understand this theme and to provide practitioners with tools to help plan for specific needs. For example, she talks about using emotion coaching and how to trigger the vagus nerve in children in order to help move a child from a stressed and upregulated state to be more calm, rational and relaxed. Be sure to listen right to the end so that you can hear all the different strategies that Lauren has used successfully to help children reach their full potential. Lauren begins by sharing her own experience of being a child in school and how she feels this has helped her to be able to help others in their journey through school and beyond. I felt schools um, or school could have helped me by the teachers almost humanising themselves by making mistakes, because I felt the teachers got everything correct, they knew everything, never made a mistake, never had got into trouble or any of those things you do as a child. So I felt like they could have humanised themselves by making a mistake on the board, by um, getting things wrong and almost talking it through with the class, um, allowing us in a little bit. So you decided as a result of your own experience, you wanted to help children. What do you hope to achieve working with neurodiverse children and their families? Um, I think to make them feel not alone and that actually this isn't school isn't everything. It's obviously a very important part of your child's life and education is, well, we're incredibly lucky to have it, but it doesn't define you as a person if you don't get 10 out of 10, if you don't get 100%. Um, you can use creativity, confidence, all of those other things can get you where you want to be in life and personality and character. And the world would be pretty boring if we were all the same. So it's just about celebrating. What gives you the energy to see all those unique things in children, to see them as different? I think it's because I'm passionate about it and I do believe in those children. And I I do believe there is more to life than just academic academic achievements and mm. we should we should be celebrating our differences and encouraging them and everyone's journey is different and 
yeah, it's important. Thank you. And let, let's think about that, celebrating neurodiversity. What what do you feel is meant by neurodiversity, first of all? How, how would you define that in your own words? I'd define it as difference. It's a difference in thinking, a difference in behaviours, a difference in achievements, actions, learning, abilities. Um, and there's no right way of thinking and there's no wrong way of thinking. It's, I suppose, a colourful way of thinking. What sorts of things have you done in schools to celebrate differences? So I've um, done a neurodiversity week in schools and um, I've gone around into different classes um, giving PowerPoints and sharing our stories as teachers and practitioners and then the children allowing them time to talk about their differences and we look at them as superpowers and how they make us special and individual and celebrating them. But I think it was, it's been really important allowing the children time to talk about what they find easy, what they find difficult in a safe space with each other, with us, um, to help us understand them better and for them to understand us better, saying what we struggle with um, mm. and, and with their peers as well because it, it's okay us spending a lot of time with these children but actually it's their peers that they spend the most time with and mm. being able to celebrate differences and opening their mindsets yeah I really I really like what you said there it sort of goes back to what you're saying about teachers being able to make mistakes and what you're saying is that you give the children the opportunity to see your own differences and mm-hmm. your own foibles and things that you might yeah. not necessarily be good at yeah what do you think has been the impact of that? What have you noticed as a result of these these um, celebration weeks? I've noticed um, empowerment to some children. They feel like actually they've reflected and thought, actually, that, that's a good thing that I can do that. Even though I struggle with this, I can achieve this. Um, I think it's been empowering for their peer-on-peer relationships because um, as much as children struggle at times with relationships, they do love to be someone's cheerleader and mm. empower them and help them achieve their goal. And it's also allowed them to notice things. So um, what I've witnessed is some children actually, oh, so-and-so's actually got eight out of ten on their times tables today. And historically they wouldn't have thought nothing of that, but they know now because that child struggles with timetables, yes, it's not ten out of ten, but they've achieved eight. Um, and them celebrating between themselves, which is which has been lovely to see. Is it always sort of academic things that you celebrate with neurodiversity? No, um, it can be. Well, it can be anything: um, drawing, creativity, um, sports, a- any anything that the children are interested in and feel like that's their niche. It's their it's their thing. Then I believe anything can be celebrated. It's not about the academic. It's about it's a balance, isn't it, for them? Mm, mm. How have you managed to get parents and carers involved in your celebration weeks? Yes, we have. We've had um, parents come in and also share their experiences of school and what jobs they've achieved. And um, we've actually had parents come up and say, "Oh, can you mention this? Or could you put that into a PowerPoint?" Um, because they know that their child struggles with some things and they want it to be highlighted. Um, so the ch- child feels like, oh, actually, I'm not the only one. 
That's really brave, isn't it, mm. actually, to, to highlight things that you, you otherwise might think this should be hidden yeah. and a secret and I don't want people to know that I'm not good at this, but actually this is this is something that I'm working on. Yeah. Or this can be a, seen as something that is unique to myself. Yeah. What what advice would you give to others um, to help them celebrate differences, whether, whether you're sort of giving advice to teachers or other TAs or whether you were giving advice to parents at home? Um, it, I believe it doesn't matter how big or small, it should all be celebrated. It should all be encouraged and nurtured. Um, and it doesn't mean that everybody is the same. It goes back to that equity or equality um, so obviously equity, treating everyone the same, we're all given the same thing. Well, actually, sometimes people need a little bit more. So that's more equality, meeting the needs um, instead of just treating everyone across the blanket as the same. Mm. So can you give us an example of where you've um, really focused on treating the needs of a child and not not getting the whole class to do one thing, but actually thinking, no, this is what this child needs. Um, so one of our children, he um, needed almost like a fidget break, needed time to sort of get up and move around. And he also needed something weighted to hold to sort of make him feel grounded. So he was the book monitor. He gave out the books every day and all the children wanted to give out the books but they didn't actually need it. What we needed to do was allow him to walk around the classroom in a controlled way, in a controlled manner, by holding the books that was weighting him to the ground, um, which he then gave out. He, he thought he was doing a job, which was great, because he didn't feel like he had any special treatment or that he was any different to anybody else. But what we'd actually done is allowed him the time to walk around the classroom, handing out the books, so that was a positive thing. That was great for us, and that was great for him. Um, whereas the other children didn't need that at that moment in time. So they weren't the book monitors. And how do you manage that in a class situation? Because I know that, especially with primary school children, there's this sort of feeling of it's not fair. If if it's not equal, everybody gets to do the same. How do you teach those children that they don't get to do the book monitor job? By having a discussion, by being open and honest with them and using yourselves as an example. We... Um, I and the teacher stood up in front of the class. I was a lot taller than the the school te the class teacher, and I said, "Right, um, we're going to change the light bulb." So I'm going to we're both going to be given the same chair. I'm going to change the light bulb, which I could obviously reach because I was a lot taller. And we gave the class teacher the same chair, and she still couldn't reach. And I put I was like, "Well, that's fair. She's got the same as me." And the children could quickly see, and very quickly, I might add it wasn't fair because she still couldn't reach and it's about being obvious with them saying well but that's the same and they were like yeah but it's not mm. because she needs a stepladder because she can't reach um in which they, we then got the stepladder out and the teacher went up the ladder and then she was able to change the light bulb and they were like well that's fair and I argued and I was like but she's now got more than what I have and they were like but you're now both able to reach the light bulb and then we spoke about reaching our full potential, how some people need that little bit more. They need a stepladder when some people just need a chair or a stool. Um, so I'd think just being obvious with the children, allowing them to see it from you and doing a bit of role play with them. 
as a result of that role play, were they then able to see different situations where, so for example, that that boy that needed to hand out books, they could see that was his stepladder for that yeah, day. Yeah, and again, just reminding them if they did find it difficult because they're children and obviously they do at times find it difficult um, and just say, oh, do you remember the stepladder and the stall? And you can see them then thinking and going, oh, yeah, okay. Um, so my next question, Lauren, is about um, some of the strategies that you've used successfully with supporting children with neurodiversity. Are there any in particular that you could share with us today um, and, and maybe give some examples of how you've how you've put them into action? I know, for example, you've talked in the past about zones of regulation. How would you implement it and what, what is it? Um, so... A lot of emotion coaching feeds into zones of regulation. Um, so it's about triggering that vagus nerve, allowing the children. Well, first of all, you need to know what the children are interested in. You need to have a relationship. Um, so I think no matter what strategy you use with a child, if you don't have the relationship first, it's then very difficult to implement anything. So getting to know the child, I think, is most important over everything. So with um, the vagus nerve, it's about finding something that they're interested with. So, for example, one of my little boys, he was fascinated with the Avengers, loved the Avengers. Um, and he had taken pencil pots off of another table and was refusing to give them back, would not would not give them back. So I thought, right, OK, how how are we going to how am I going to manage manage this without one causing his anxiety? to raise and put him into crisis and how am I going to please these other children by giving the pencil pot back so I spoke to the young man and I had a card of the Avengers with me and I was like who's that and he was like oh Captain America I was like oh, okay who's that and he was like Thor and I said oh I noticed Thor has a hammer and he was like yeah and I said what about if Captain America took Thor's hammer and he was mortified because he was like, no, Thor needs the hammer. Captain America's got his shield. And I was like, oh, I said, but Captain America really wants Thor's hammer and he's going to keep it. And he was like, well, he can't because it belongs to Thor. So I looked at the pencil pots and I said, oh, I said, so these pencil pots belong to this table. I said, like Thor's hammer belongs to Thor. And he was like, I'll give the pencil pots back. <laughs> and he was he then gave the pencil pots back to the other table and carried on the rest of his day absolutely fine because it was something he could to relate to and something that he understood because clearly Thor has his hammer and Captain America has his shield and he knew that that's where they needed to be. He was able then to translate that onto the pencil pots. Fantastic. I love that story. So that that's emotion yeah. coaching. And I can see how that really works. And I, th I think, you know, the key point you were saying there is getting to really know the child and know what, what triggers their vagus nerve, what makes them tick, if you like, and what calms them down. Can you tell us a little bit about zones of regulation? Tell us what it is and how you've implemented it in school. So zones of regulation is looking at emotions in three clear categories. So you have a blue zone, a green zone, a yellow zone and a red zone. In the blue zone, typical feelings are like sick, sadness, tired, boredom, uh, moving slowly. Green, you have happy, calm, good to go, focused and ready to learn. Yellow, you might have feelings like frustrated, worried, 
wiggling and being a bit silly, anxious and excited. And red, you would have like angry, mean, yelling and hitting out of control and I need time and space. So a time in which I would use this um, would be maybe that a child is highly escalated and that could be through excitement or it could be through feeling um, angry or upset. And I would use a card that has these clear zones on it and say, how are you feeling right now? Because at that moment in time to articulate it is too much for that child. So I would put this on a, it's laminated so it can't be torn because also if they're in high um, crisis, they might, it might be something that they want to rip up. So I would laminate it first. Um, and they might point to that they're green. And I can then unpick and think, oh, because you're happy. Because they might see their behaviours as being happy and that they're having a lovely time when actually what you can see is they're overexcited and they're actually in the yellow um, and they're being silly and they're wiggling around and they're getting up um, and what they actually need at that moment in time is a movement break. So then what I would do if they've pointed to the green, I'd say, oh, actually, what I can see is is maybe you're feeling a bit overexcited. And what we do when we feel overexcited is we go for a movement break. And I, th that child would then think, oh, actually, maybe I do need a movement break. And then we'd leave the classroom quietly, go and have five minutes outside of a movement break, however that may look. Maybe that's 10 star jumps. Maybe that's just running up and down on the spot. Um, maybe it's just going for a run around the playground, um, allowing them that time to get rid of that pent up energy, but also it being controlled by yourself. So you feel in control of the situation. And then when they come back to you, check in again, how are you now feeling? And then they say, oh, actually, now I'm green and I'm good to go and I'm focused, ready to go back into class. And then you can take them back in and then they can sit down and continue with the rest of their day. And do you use them with all children or, or do you tend to just stick to neurodiverse children when you're using zones? I would use them with all children um, because I think it's good for neurodiverse children to see um, that it can be used for everybody um, and allows everyone to see, oh, actually, this is just practice. This isn't something special for me. This isn't making me different. This is just practice. So can we talk about what you know as protective behaviours and how you use this in school? So protective behaviours to me is about the children having the right to feel safe all the time and that they know they can talk to someone about anything, even if it feels awful or small. Um, so a lot of work in protective behaviours is um, about co-regulating with the children so building up a positive relationship and helping them spot things like the early warning signs, which is where a child might notice, oh, actually, I've got this feeling in my fingers where I, I'm wiggling them. And that means that actually I'm getting quite frustrated because that wiggling then turns into a fist and then that fist ends up hitting somebody. So it's about uh, noticing within themselves that that is what they do before they get to crisis. Um, and you co-regulating with them to help them notice that about themselves. Um, and then what that then leads on to is the child then being able to self-regulate and notice that within themselves without you being there. Um, and they can actually think to themselves, oh, I'm wriggling my fingers. That must mean I'm frustrated. What can I do at that point 
to then make myself feel less stressed and that then might be to use the zones of regulation um mm. oh, so i see how one yes, can lead on to yes. another um obviously it's really important that you have these relationships with your children because you need to know them to then be able to help them unpick their behavior and their early warning signs um something that's really lovely about the protective behaviors is having a network hand and it's something really simple that allows the children to see who they feel they can trust and have a safe relationship with, who they can go and talk to. Um, so it's just draw, them drawing around their hand um, and writing potentially five people on each finger um, to adults or children. We do encourage that there are adults on there because obviously adults are the one that can put things into practice to prevent things and to help. Um if there's anything worrying them, troubling them, or anything they'd just like to share, no matter how big or small. Um, and it's quite nice if you cut the hand out. If, say, they've got five people on there, they might only have three. And it's important to tell them that they don't have to fill their hand. Um, because once again, we don't want them to feel like they're failing because they haven't got five people and they've only got three. It's better to have three quality people than just fill it up with five people that they'd never speak to. Um, but once you've cut it out, um, if, for example, they were coming to see myself and they put my finger down because I wasn't in school that day, they can physically bend my finger down and see that they've got another two people that they can talk to. Actually, I'd really like to go and talk to this adult, but she's off sick today. Put my finger down. Oh, I've actually got one more adult that I can go and talk to. Um, because what we don't want to happen is they think, oh, Lauren's not in today. Um, I'm just not going to bother telling anybody um, when it could be something quite serious or it could just be a worry that we don't want to turn into a bigger worry. So just them being physically able to push those fingers down um, to see that there are other people in school or around that they could go and talk to if they wanted to. And what about those children who might not be able to write a, an adult or a child's name down on a hand? Maybe they're too young or maybe their behaviours prevent them from doing that. Do you do you create the hand for them just through talking and, and does it work um, as effectively? Yes, we would try to um, create a hand with them. However, I think we'd have to take a step back and think about who would we like on that child's hand is it best that it's the class teacher and is it best it's the class TA? Um, and how do we then foster a relationship, a positive trusting relationship with them for the child then to recognise, oh, actually, they can go on my hand? Um, so I think, it again, and I know time can be an issue at, at times because obviously schools are very busy places, but it's allowing those five, ten minutes, oh, this young man likes Lego, five minutes at the end of every day the teacher plays lego with him and then over the course of maybe a couple of weeks he might say oh actually mrs so and so can actually go on my hand and if they're little um helping them get to that oh i, I saw you were playing with mrs thingy today do you think she could go on your hand and almost prompting them that that is a safe trusting adult that they can talk to 
And again, how, how could parents use this at home? So I'm just mindful that people listening could be those working in schools like yourself, but also parents and carers. Is this something that you would suggest yeah, parents use at home? Yeah, I think it's a lovely home? thing that you can use at home. And it also shows that bridge between school and home. If we can get a lot of the practices that we're using in school into home, it shows the child that there's consistency and the schools are talking with parents. And then if parents have any strategies or things that are at home that are working, I think it's really important they share it with the school as well. Um, but I think with the hand, to have it indoors, once again, when a child is highly escalated um, and they're not able to talk and they don't want to talk to mum because mum's the one that's annoyed them, um, you can get out the hand and say, well, go and talk to somebody else on here. Do you want to phone Auntie Sue or do you want to phone Grandad or um, gives them an outlet? But once again, you're in control and keeping them safe. So, Lauren, what key thing would you want a listener to take away from today's um, conversation? That everyone's different and the world's a colourful place and everyone should be supported um, and given the opportunity to shine. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Lauren. Thank you for your time and for sharing so many of your ideas with us today. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation and are able to take something interesting and positive away from it. Our podcasts are sensitively produced and give evidence-based information, whether from academic research and experts in their fields or from lived experiences. They are created to help others spot early signs of distress and may require further monitoring and information on how to follow up and get help. Learning about child mental health and understanding how to recognise potential disorders is an important first step for everyone caring for children and young people. Please visit our website nipinthebud.org and go to our Where to Get Help page for organisations which can provide both support and further information to help you and those you care for. Any specific links that we've spoken about today can be found in the show notes. Finally, you can find Nip in the Bud on all the socials and get more information and further support. Don't forget to subscribe, like and share with someone who you think may benefit from all that Nip in the Bud has to offer. See you next time.